listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Go ahead and grab your Bible with me. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we near the end of this series looking at this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And through the letter, we have been considering what it means to be set apart by God. Timothy had been set apart for the ministry, but all of us who accept Jesus have been set apart not only for salvation, but set apart to live our lives in a certain way. Remember that Paul's primary purpose in writing the letter right there at the beginning, he said, Paul, Peter, uh, Timothy, I, I want to warn you about those who are going to come into the church and teach a way of living that is different from the way that we have been called to live. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul gives us more of that purpose. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, I am writing you these things so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family, in the church of the living God. This is how we ought to conduct ourselves. Paul's letter is incredibly pastoral and practical. Pastoral because Paul is instructing Timothy and he's encouraging him in how to shepherd the flock that has been entrusted to him and to lead them in the way they ought to live, but also practical because Paul addresses real-life situations that were not only applicable to what was happening in the first century church, but are also very much relevant for our lives today in the 21st century church. And as Paul nears the end of the letter, he turns to one of those practical things that reared its head right at the beginning of the church and certainly more than ever applies to our lives today as those who have been set apart to follow Jesus. And that is the idea of money. More than money, however, what money or the want of money signifies, the deeper issue of contentment, or lack of contentment, lack of satisfaction, lack of fulfillment. In verses 3 through 5 here of chapter 6, Paul begins to summarize his letter and he states this. These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. In other words, Timothy, the things that I've written to you about which I have written are things that you must insist that your flock do. You settle for nothing less than obedience to these things and you redirect where necessary. Those who disagree aren't just disagreeing with you as their pastor and they're not just disagreeing with me as an apostle, but they are disagreeing with Jesus Christ himself. That's why he says the instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he is saying is that there is a right way and a wrong way to live this set apart life. That's what we've been talking about throughout this entire series. And so those who disagree, Paul describes as one of two things, either conceited or lacking understanding. And lack of understanding we'll call ignorance because that's what it is. To be conceited is to be excessively proud, to think of yourself more highly than you ought, or to consider yourself better than others. 
Someone who ignores the instructions given by God through his word, the sound instruction given by Jesus Christ, consider themselves more important than what God has to say. That they know better in how to live life than the author of life. And that sounds ridiculous, but we do it all the time. When we reject something the Bible tells us or we try to rationalize it away because we want to continue doing our way, we are conceited. We are thinking of ourselves more highly than God. Or Paul says, those who disagree lack understanding or are ignorant. They don't have the knowledge of how to live. And we know that we live in a society where ignorance is no excuse to the law, right? We've heard that. That even if I don't know that law exists, that I'm still responsible when I break it. So there are some that, that lack this understanding, but this is no excuse because God has told us what to do. He has told us what he expects of us. He didn't leave us to wonder what it is that pleases him and what doesn't. It's right here for us in the pages of our Bible. As God tells us, here is how we live this life. And men like Paul and Timothy and pastors today who have been called into ministry have been given the gift of explaining God's words to those who struggle to understand. The very fact that you are here today listening and we are opening up God's word together and we are looking what God wants from us eliminates the excuse that we lack understanding. Like, like we're sitting in this room and so we can't say that we're ignorant of these things anymore because this is what God is telling us through his word. And the point is that those who have been set apart have no excuse for rejecting the way of life that God has called them to as members of his household. And Paul goes on to give the fruit of those who reject it later in that verse. He says, what comes out of this are controversies and Quarrels about words, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction. Every single one of us knows somebody who sort of thrives off of these things that, that Paul has just listed here, right? They're the people who say, oh, I hate drama, and yet they're always in the middle of the drama because, because they, they thrive off of these things. We have individuals that do that, but we also have entire groups, entire denominations that are rejecting the right way to live. They're bowing to the culture and they're fracturing within themselves because of the infighting that has come as a result of choosing to live the way they want to live. And if we contrast this list of the fruit of these things with what Paul says in Galatians 5 are the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit of God's spirit that lives inside of us. And they stand in stark contrast to the list that he has given to Timothy in chapter 6. In fact, he ends that list in Galatians 5 by saying, let us not be conceited, provoking and envying one another. You see the connection to what he said to Timothy and what he said to the church in Galatia? These things stand in stark contradiction to living the way of life that God has called us to live. They're a result of conceit and 
envy and malicious talk. Then at the end of verse 5 in his letter, Paul reveals that these who have come teaching lies and leading others away from this set-apart life have begun to see godliness as a means to financial gain. And I think it's fascinating that humans have always had the ability to take something that is good and to monetize it, right? Like we've always had this ability to take something that should be good for people and turn it into a way that benefits us. It shows us that our hearts have remained largely unchanged since the first century. In fact, they've remained largely unchanged since God created us at the beginning, but certainly since the first century. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church break out. Remember Pentecost, Peter and the rest of the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter jumps, he comes out of the house to preach, to speak. He, he proclaims the gospel. Thousands of people believe. And then at the end of that chapter, the church breaks out. And we get this amazing picture of what the first church looked like. Just three chapters later in Acts chapter 5, Luke records for us the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? In fact, chapter 4, we're introduced to Barnabas, and Luke tells us that Barnabas had sold some property. He had brought the entire proceeds of the property to the apostles' feet to be used for the kingdom. And then in the next paragraph, he tells us about Ananias and Sapphira, this, this, this couple who had sold their property, but they kept back some of it for themselves, and they bring it to the apostles' feet, claiming that this was the full amount for the property that they had sold. See, the issue with their situation was not that they held back some from themselves. It was that they wanted to look like Barnabas. They wanted to look godly on the outside while maintaining some wealth for themselves. They wanted other people to look at them like they were up here when inside all they cared about was the money. Inwardly, they had never let go of that love. And if you know the story, they paid the ultimate price for that, for their hypocrisy and for their lies. And God gave us that example to show us how serious this is. How serious it is that we, we show what's worthy in what he has given us and not in these worldly things. And of course, it's still a problem in the church today. Not just with pastors peddling the prosperity gospel, pastors who rob their congregations, their life savings in order to line their own pockets and buy mansions and private jets. Yes, that is a, a, a huge issue, but I'm talking about in the lives of those who are sitting in the seats. In the lives of those sitting in the pews who are asking, will God really provide for me? Will God really do this if I go all in and trust him with what he's commanded me to do, not just in money, but in every area of life? Will God do this? And this is where Paul gets practical. He's given us what not to do, and now he's going to shift in verse 6 to show us what the set-apart life looks like and as it relates to our finances and this idea of contentment. Contrasting against using godliness as a means to financial gain, he writes in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
And here's the overarching point that we're driving at this weekend that we're going to focus on. I want you to fill it out on your outlines or write it out a couple times. And that is that godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're a math guy like me, put it in an equation. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain, right? That's how I think about things. You cannot get gain unless you have both pieces of the equation. Godliness and contentment. And so I want to look at these two ideas and then see what results. First, it's godliness. And that's really what this entire series has been about. You've been set apart not only as a child of God who has been rescued by the sacrifice of Jesus and saved to eternal life, but you have been set apart to live a godly life in response to the gift you've received. So we define godliness this way. It's living life the way God wants according to what he has said in the pages of his word. That's how we define godliness. Now we can say we're godly by living the way that we think God wants, but that's not what I'm saying. Godliness is living the way God wants according to what he has told us. Not according to what we think is best, not based on some convoluted rationalization when we don't like what's there, but recognizing that God's way is the best way always. That, that it always shows us the best life that can be lived. And since most of this series has been about godliness, I'm not going to spend much time on that because I want to focus mainly on the second part of that formula, which is contentment. Contentment is defined as being happy, fulfilled, satisfied, regardless of what you have, regardless of what you have. It's not achieved by accumulating until you reach a certain point that you no longer have to worry about anything. Rather, it's a state of mind which understands that I'm okay even if I have very little or if I lose what I do have. That's what contentment is. It's actually an idea that is very difficult for us to get our minds around or for us to express in words because the society and culture in which we live breeds the exact opposite. We have monetized discontentment. That means that the world gets rich off selling you the idea that you need more, that you're lacking something, that you're somehow deficient if you don't have this or if you don't attain this. Like if you just have this newest iPhone with 16 cameras, then you'll be happy until the next one comes out and it has a 17th camera. I didn't know I needed a 17th camera until the iPhone came out, right? And so the world says, you need this. And the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. When I was a kid, I would go to the grocery store, to the store with my grandma often. And uh, I loved to go to the store with grandma because I knew that she was a softie. And I knew that she loved to spoil me. And so I knew that if I went to the store with her, I would get something. And so I, I would pester her all the time about what is it she was going to get me. And one day she looked at me and she said, if you're good and you don't ask for anything, I'll get you something. Now, this created a conundrum in my mind for two reasons. I didn't even know what a conundrum was, but I knew that there was a problem with what she was saying. The first was, how would she know what I wanted if I couldn't tell her what I wanted? 
And yet the very act of telling her what I wanted would disqualify me from getting something. And so I was like stuck in this place. The second problem was, would she remember if I didn't remind her? Like, like as we're walking through the store, we've been in there 20, 30 minutes. Like, I, I'm pretty sure she's old, right? She's in her 40s. And, <laughs> and she's going to forget that, that she's offered something to me. And so I need to remind her, but that's pestering. And pestering could disqualify me from receiving something. See, she bought my silence, but it didn't quash my wanting. I wanted something. On the outside, I looked like that good little boy just calmly walking through the grocery store with his grandmother, but on the inside, I was screaming, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I need you to know that I want this, and I need to remind you that you need to get me this, right? Like inside, I was just, I was just waiting to tell her what it was. This is what discontentment is. Even on the outside, I may look like everything is okay, but inside, I'm longing for something. When Paul describes contentment, he says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Someone said to me recently, I've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. In other words, some of our contentment is found in the reality that even if we were to accumulate more and more, it would mean nothing by the end of our lives. No, Paul says here, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We will be happy. We will be satisfied. We will be fulfilled by simply having the essential necessities that allow us to live day to day. We may have more than that, but the contented person sees the more as simply added blessings that could be gone tomorrow, and that would be okay. Like, like I would be okay if I lost all of it. Because we know that God is going to give us what we need to do what he has set us apart to do. And that's where we begin to get our minds around what true contentment is and where it comes from. It's the understanding that God knows what you need and God is pleased to give it to you. Like, like it was so funny because my grandmother knew what it was that I wanted. And she was so happy to get it for me. Right? That's what God does. And I want you to consider for a moment who it is that's writing this to Timothy, this Paul, and the things that Paul had experienced, right? The, like the highs and the lows of his life. He wrote to the Philippian church. He said, I'm not saying this to you because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And my goodness, doesn't that put that last verse in context? Right, when we take Philippians 4.13 and we put it on the wall and we say, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength, but look at what came before it. When Paul talks about what it means to be okay when he has nothing, and there were times that he literally had nothing but a cloak on his back. What was the secret that Paul learned? That true contentment is found in valuing godliness above all else. What do I mean by that? 
Remember that just before this, Paul spoke of those who were using godliness as a means to financial gain. They may have looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were shouting for more and more, and they were leading others astray in order to get it. Paul says, Christian, those set apart for this life should seek godliness as a means to its own end. Godliness for the sake of godliness. And this is what leads to real and authentic and lasting satisfaction. Consider the wisdom found in Proverbs 30, verse 7. The author writes, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Don't refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Think back to what Paul warned Timothy of. Don't let them come in teaching things that aren't truth. Keep falsehood and lies from me. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because I'm pretty sure that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, one of the, one of the verses in that section was, Lord, give me my daily bread. I ask for my daily bread, and I wonder, is it possible that Jesus had this proverb in mind? Because Jesus knew the Proverbs. I wonder if he had this proverb in mind when he told us to pray like that. But I want you to look at how the author continues, because it gives us more insight into why Jesus tells us to pray that way. He says, don't give me poverty or riches, only my daily bread, otherwise... I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Where is the, the author's focus? It's on God. In both instances, it's on God. Notice that the prayer is not about the amount at all. It's not about whether I have enough or whether I don't have enough, whether I have as much as the other guy. No, the emphasis is simply on godliness. The author recognizes that he ha if he has too much, then he may come to depend on himself. And that'll be okay for a little while until it's not. And he doesn't want to forget who God is and, and what God can do and what it means to be dependent on God. But he says if he has too little, then he might be tempted to go and steal something to meet his Needs And he knows that God's command says, don't steal from other people. And so if he were to go steal what he needed, then he would be dishonoring his God. Through and through, his primary focus is on God. And so he doesn't want to be in a situation where his godliness might be at stake. And so he asks God for simply enough. Enough so that his relationship with his God won't be put at risk. And this shows us another reality, one that Paul will explain further in verses 9 through 10 when he writes, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And this is the point that Proverbs 30 makes and that Paul is explaining here that discontentment will always lead to a decrease in godliness. Discontentment will lead to a decrease in godliness. Why? Because it is a sign that your focus is on something other than God, and eventually that thing that has your attention will draw you away. You'll find yourself enticed 
by the luster of the newest investment opportunity, the newest gadget, the newest relationship, the newest promotion, whatever it is that you've set your heart on. If you're not pursuing godliness for the sake of godliness and instead wanting after everything else, eventually you are going to find yourself dragged away. Because that thing that has your attention is going to continue pulling you that way till you look back and you're nowhere near what God desires of you. And if you're struggling to know if this is you, then I want to ask a few practical questions. And I ask these questions not to shame you or make you feel bad about the way that you've been living or the things that you've been wanting. I can tell you that I have, I have fought this temptation. Remember years ago when I worked for the consulting company and I was driving home and I just, I knew God was calling me into something. He was calling me to do something different and I was wrestling with him because I wanted to provide so much for my family. I wanted to give them things. I wanted to take vacations. I wanted to have money to do these kinds of things. And, and I had to wrestle with God. So I know what this looks like in my own life. And it's not just finances. It's, it's other areas too. But I, but I asked the questions to get our minds thinking about worldly things so that we can recognize them and seek after godliness. And so, so what do your shopping habits look like? How often are you at Target? Ladies, guys don't go to Target, right? Like how often are you at Target? Do you find yourself there every day just to see what's new on the shelves while your husband's waiting in the parking lot? Do you find yourself scrolling through Amazon for hours, right? Like, like I'm not even looking for something in particular. I'm just looking. Like we're constantly window shopping. Or do you find yourself purchasing things when, when you're emotionally vulnerable, when you're struggling with the way that you, you feel in the moment, and so you go and you go, maybe this will make me feel better right now. You find yourself jealous of what others have and wishing that you had a means to it yourself. Like I, I look at the things that this person, my, my neighbor has, and I'm, my goodness, I, I wish I could have that. How do you feel when your 401k or your stocks take a dive like everything has in the last couple of years? Right? Do you find yourself just in the bottom? Or maybe on the other side when things go up or you get some inheritance or you come into some money somehow and you just get this, this overwhelming sense of euphoria that only lasts a short while and then you're back down at the bottom again trying to get the next fix. What does your credit card bill look like? Well, that's a big one. Because if you're buying with money you don't have, it's a pretty good sign that you're not content with what you do have. And so we go and we buy and we purchase. Look at your relationships. Are you looking for something outside of the relationship you have right now with your spouse? Sign that you're not content with what God has for you. Let's just talk about the lottery for a second, right? The lottery's been in the news the last couple of weeks because it reached this, this massive jackpot of over $2 billion. It got so large that they began giving tickets away, right? Like you could go to a gas station and you could wait in line for hours to get your 
300 million to one odds that you might win a couple billion dollars. And you say, well, it's not gambling if they give you the ticket. And technically that's true. But consider with me for a moment what that ticket signifies. Whether you pay a dollar for it or not, consider a moment what what it signifies. Because I know what happens the moment that you have that ticket in hand. You begin dreaming about what your life might look like if you won this money. And again, I'm not, I'm not shaming you. Several years ago, I, I fell for that, you know, buy a $100 raffle ticket to win a free house because it benefits hospitals, right? Like, like, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could be like, surprise Amanda with a house? And I had to surprise her by telling her I spent $100 of our money <laughs> on, a, on a ticket for a house that we no longer, we don't have, right? Like I'd already dreamt about what I was gonna do with this house. I was gonna sell it because it was in Louisville. Wasn't gonna live over there, right? But like I, I bought into it because I thought it would give us something that we didn't have. And so we, we dream about what life would look like. And we say, well, if I win, I'll give 10% to the church. But you'll wrestle with whether to do that before or after taxes because you do it with your income now, right? We begin to think about how much better life will be if I have this. And it speaks to the heart of the whole issue. Because that $1 ticket or or whatever it is signifies hope in something else besides God. Parker and I were in the gas station a couple weeks ago. And he said, why don't we do it? It's just a dollar. And I tried to explain this to him. And of course, he didn't get it. Because it's a hard thing to understand when the world is just telling you the exact opposite. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Not not to shame you if you stood in line for your ticket, or if you spend more time at Target than you do at home. But to simply say that these kinds of things reveal where our hope and our contentment are. Being set apart means pursuing godliness for the sake of godliness and recognizing, as Peter said, that it's his divine power that has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you hear what Peter is saying there? That if we are seeking a godly life as God has called us to do, if we are pursuing godliness for the sake of godliness, then God has given us everything that we need for that. We we already have it. We don't need anything else in order to achieve something. God has already given it to us. And that's the gain. Godliness plus contentment equals gain, and this is it. We live the set apart and godly lives with the understanding that God is going to provide all that we need to do so, and if this is our mentality, then we'll never go without. I could lose everything. I could lose my house. I could lose my car, my investments, my retirement. And if my joy is found in pleasing my God and living in the joy of my salvation, then those things won't matter. They won't matter one little bit. Imagine waking up tomorrow without one worry or care about what's in your bank account or what your investments are doing or whether you're going to have this or that by the end of the day. Isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life 
more than food and the body more than clothing. But you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. Now interestingly, starting in verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul actually gives instructions for those who have achieved wealth. Right? Paul recognizes that there are those in the church who have come to faith and they, they already have wealth. But remember that our issue has not been with what we have, but being satisfied with what we have. And isn't it true that the people who have the most are often the most unsatisfied with what they have? But Paul's words speak to the gain of godliness and contentment. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life that is truly life. And this is the ultimate game. Godly contentment unblinds us from the riches that are already ours in Christ. Paul says it allows us to take hold of life that is truly life. Jesus said, I've come, they might have life and have it to the full. The problem is that the cares of this world, the desire for wealth and material possessions, the want of things we don't have, have blinded us from what life can really look like. And Jesus says that we need to be careful that we don't become like the seed that fell among the thorns and got choked out by the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. In the parable of the sower, Jesus was talking about this situation, talking about those who are discontent, talking about those who allow the cares of this life. I was at one point one of those people wrestling with God, wondering how he was going to provide for the things that I want when he was calling me to live the life that he wants. And the truth is that we think, we think we want to win the lottery because we'll never have to worry about money. When in reality, something has been won for us that is of infinitely greater worth, and God says you don't have to worry about money. He told us that. You don't have to worry about this anymore. I've got you. I've got this. I'm taking care of this. We buy the $1 ticket hoping it will gain for us peace. When God says, I'm going to give you peace that surpasses understanding, you're not going to get it from this. Or, or we, we buy it for comfort. And the reality is that he is the one who has promised to comfort us in our affliction. We buy it for hope. When his word says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters into the inner sanctuary where, where Jesus intercedes on our behalf, recalls us his own, or we want it for security. Security is found in the undeniable truth of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's our security. And if I lose my life today, I'm with him forever. 
See, there are no odds of winning these things. They are guaranteed for the Christian. God has promised them through the pages of his word for all those who will believe in Jesus Christ and accept the gift of salvation and the hope that has come through that. And that's the great reversal. That in no longer seeking the things of this world, we find the greatest contentment and joy in what really matters. Pleasing our God. Living for him. And he's given us everything that we need for that when we are dependent upon him for these things, he has promised to meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And I don't know about you, but I would take my God's glorious riches over all the treasure in the world. You don't have to buy a ticket or wait in line. You don't have to want after the things that the world is offering. God says it's right here for the taking. He desires to give you this treasure. The Father desires to give you this treasure. And so if you've not accepted it, then you're missing out on the kind of life that can be lived apart from the world. To have life and have it to the full, that's the invitation. If you want to respond, let's stand up and let's pray. Father, we we look to your word as the guarantee of what has been given to us. Lord, that we don't have to long after the riches of the world when we have been given treasure out of the glorious riches of our God. Our God who made life possible through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us that we would not be dragged away and enticed by these things. And Lord, it is so easy to do. But the moment we begin to look elsewhere, I pray that you would focus our eyes back squarely on you and we would recognize the gift that has been given to us. We would depend on you for all things. We would find our joy and our satisfaction, our fulfillment entirely in what it means to please you. Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you've made to us and for the gift of eternal life that is for those who have accepted Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.